The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. If you have a Bible, uh, we're going to be 1 Corinthians. That's the book of 1 Corinthians. That is, um, at the end of your Bible, about 100 pages in from the back cover. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we've got a few in the back on the, on the red table. We'd love for you actually just to take that. We don't need those. We'd love for you to have that. Um, that is because we are in this series on 1 Corinthians, good news for bad Christians. Um, it's a good thing that God has good news for bad Christians uh, because we all need help, whether you're exploring Jesus or you're in Jesus. Um, we all need help following Him. And so that's what this book is all about. Uh, we are in the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be looking at the second or the latter half of chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians. And here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read the whole chapter for us. Last week, we looked at the first half of this passage, and we saw how Paul was describing that when we're our identities in Jesus, we are free to no longer have to build our, our resume of who we are, good, bad, whatever. And now we're free to be able to be a, in Jesus, enjoy that, and love other people. So I'm going to read the full chapter for us, and then we're going to start looking at this together. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ, as stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. With me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things that are now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each will receive his commendation from God. I've applied these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have won. Already you've become rich. Without us, you have become kings and would that you, have, you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us as apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we, have, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are like scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as beloved children, for, all, for though you have, um, for, excuse me, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I have become your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then to be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out the talk of these arrogant people with their power. The kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. 
What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and the spirit of gentleness? Let's pray. Father, as we look at this Word, as we look at your Word together, I pray that you would help us to enjoy Jesus, to be free from having to build our identities on our own terms, but, Lord, to be people who actually put our identity in Jesus into action. And we do this together. And so together we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, does anybody, when you were in high school, did anybody uh, take physics? Yeah, maybe a few of you. Yeah. Uh, so I signed up for physics class when I was in high school because I thought I was going to be learning about how, uh, you know, race cars and rockets all, like, crashed in or moved around and all that stuff. I did not realize that physics was basically another word for math. Um, I did not know that uh, because <laughs> clearly you probably did, and that's why you didn't take the class. I thought that physics was all about like how objects moved, and you like threw balls down the hallway, and it was like a big, basically like a PE class with science. No, um, I found out the hard way that it was all a bunch of math. Um, and if anybody gets into math, you're always kind of wondering, like, what is this application to the real world? Like, how does this actually apply? What does this mean for our real lives, right? How many of you have been in your math class? Or, speaking of Peter, our illustrious math teacher over here, um, have you been in your math class and you've been like, what does this mean for my life, right? That could actually be what we did with last week's passage. We can look at this passage all about the freedom of our identity in Jesus, how Jesus has died and risen again, and he's given us our, his identity so that now nothing from our past can define who we are, um, both positive and negative, and everything that's true in Jesus now defines who we are, and we can walk away kind of feeling like, okay, so now what do we do, right? Last week, if you remember, we were quoting from our um, godfather in the faith, Tim Keller, true gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. That's the freedom of self-forgetfulness. I now perform on the basis of the verdict. He loves me. God accepts me. I don't have to do things to build my resume, my identity resume. I don't have to do things to make me look good. I can do things for the joy of doing them. So we can hear that and we could be like, wow, that sounds like great, kind of like a math class. Like, that's, I get it. I can see how this all works together, right? Now, because Jesus has died for all my sins and all the good things that I thought I was, uh, were, um, that made me look good, now everything is true about me is true in Jesus. That sounds great, but what do I do? Like, does this mean that I just kind of like become a monk on the side of a hill and just kind of, all right, everybody, my identity is in Jesus. I don't have to do anything. We can walk away with that, right? We kind of walk away from being like, all right, if everything about me is true already, God doesn't have to pronounce any, there's not any verdict waiting. It's already been pronounced. I don't have to do anything. Um, kind of like a passive, now I can just check out Netflix my life away. I don't have to do anything. Actually, when the Bible talks about our identity being rooted in Jesus, what does it mean to not have to manage our identity, who we are, what's our value? But now that it's secured in Jesus, you're infinitely loved and infinitely known and more blessed than you could imagine. Actually, what that does for us is it makes us become wildly active, adventurously proactive in our lives together. And that's actually what we come across in this passage. I know this, we read this passage and at first blush, we're kind of like, man, here again, Paul's just being a jerk to these people, <laughs> just being mean. I'm going to call him out, calling him kind of like almost like you almost feel like there's like a little bit of like a underhanded like name calling here going on in Paul. 
but that Paul would actually, what he's doing here is he's setting us an example. If our identity's been freed in Jesus, we don't have to manage it anymore. We don't have to figure out who we are. If we're valued in Jesus, what does it look like to put that into action? Paul gives us an example, right? He, how, do we, how do we live out a life in Jesus, our identity in Jesus? He actually, he uses this one word in the last verse of our passage we were just looking at. In love, with love, in a spirit of gentleness, right? Love in the Bible, it's not this kind of hallmark Valentine's Day term that we kind of use like, don't you love me? Does he love me? Does he love me not? It's a proactive movement of our life. So when Paul was doing in this passage, Paul is setting us an example of how to put Jesus' identity to work in our lives, right? Not to be arrogant, right? Remember how we talked about in the passage, you can't judge me, right? Only God can judge me, that idea. It's not an arrogant demeanor, and it's not also an indifferent demeanor. Do whatever you want, right? It's proactively engaged together as a church to live out what does it mean to put it into action. So if we're going to say, here's the main point of this passage, right? We always do this every week. What's the main point of this passage? We must put our identity in Jesus into action with each other. That's the main point of this passage. If you're like, hey, how do I get the main point of this? And then I check out. This is the main point, but I'd love for you to not check out. We must put our identity in Jesus into action with each other. So what does that mean? Because that's what Paul's doing from last week. He's saying we are rooted in Jesus, and how do we live that out? So now, kind of like our math class with my desire for my physics class, right? What is that? What does the application of that look like? We're going to be looking at that. A Jesus-centered identity is what we're going to be looking at. What does it mean to have a Jesus-centered identity? First thing we're going to be looking at, verses 6 to 7, a Jesus-centered identity celebrates grace in all of life. Let me read these, these verses for us again. I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? What then you received, if you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Right, you, you pick up on that word here, that you may learn not to be puffed up. What Paul is talking about, this is where we're getting this whole category of our identity, right? A puffed up identity is one that we're trying to build on our own terms. And Paul has been laying out, if you're in Jesus, your identity is rooted, it's grounded, it's secured in who he is. But he's doing that so that we, King's Cross, these folks in our neighborhood, might not get an identity that's puffed up, an ego that's all bent out of shape. The word that he's using there is actually kind of the same word that we would use for like the word like bellows or balloon, right? A puffed up kind of, if you imagine, um, you're seeing like a, like a thick latex balloon is like stretching and stretching and stretching, it's kind, of, kind of like a stretch marks on it. And like if you just kind of grazed it, it would pop. That's the image that Paul's saying. He's coming at us to show us what does it mean to be in Jesus so that we don't have an identity, a, a root, a core of who we are that's puffed up and in many ways an identity that's uh, puffed up like a balloon, right, that's empty and fragile and painful, right? If you, if you read the Keller book that I was quoting last week, you know I'm getting these straight from Dr. Keller. But this idea of, and I, of our identities being like a balloon, he's coming after that to kind of deflate us in many ways, to help us have a real identity so that in, in Jesus we don't have one that's 
puffed up and fragile and painful, right? If, it, if, if our identities are like a balloon, puffed up, like he says there in verse, uh, verse 7 or verse 6, we don't want you to be puffed up. What does it mean to be a balloon to be empty, right? Has the appearance of having solid, like have you ever have a balloon, like it looks solid, but there's nothing to it, right? It's empty, kind of clamors around inside. There's nothing inside. It looks like it's big, but it, there's nothing really on the deep, in the uh, inside of substance, right? A balloon, isn't it also fragile, right? Easily pops. You ever, you ever had learned that you can't put balloons in a hot car, right? They pop against the window. It's fragile. We think it's like to have an identity that's always fragile like a balloon, constantly trying to manage people like me, do they love me? Am I valued? Am I not valued? Am I, am I acceptable? Did I do the right thing? Did I wear the right clothes? I remember when I was in high school, I was uh, in the underground punk scene, but I was still like, like a decent kid, you know? Like, and I remember like talking to my friends, I was like, yeah, I want to put these spikes on my backpack, but I got to talk to my mom first. And they were like, what are you talking about? Just put them on your backpack. And then I was left because my ego was so fragile. I was like, well, do I talk to my mom or do I defer to my punk friends? What do I do? Fragile ego. Which leaves us that the reality is, apart from Jesus, managing our own identity is a painful reality, isn't it? What fills me up? Does it not? Does it fill me up enough? Does it make me look good enough? That's a painful experience. So Paul is coming after us and saying, no, no, at a functional level, I want you to not have to manage your own identity because on your own, it's a fragile, painful experience to have a puffed-up ego. But rather, he says in verse 7, for who sees anything different in you, right? There's really no difference. In some ways, he's basically saying, there's no difference. All of us, whether you're a Christian or you're not Christian, all of us, he says, what do you have that you did not receive? Right? Isn't this one of the things that we learn uh, that, our friends, uh, that if you've gone through the 12-steps program, is a dynamic of gratitude, right? We've received everything, right? This is what do you have that you have not received? If you have received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? <laughs> this is proud people feel that they deserve everything and take credit for things that they've been given, right? They feel there is a sense of a bit of a, a smugness to the smile that they have in their face. Yes, I was given this, but it was because I deserved it. I earned it. This is owed me. Yeah, but you were giving it. You were given it. And it's almost you can feel the rhetorical question for Paul, what do you have that you did not receive? That you did not receive? And the question is, I received all things, right? If the answer is all things, that means that the, 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 what's in view for Paul is not just, hey, um, you were given a T-shirt by the church or whatever. <laughs> you were given life and air and breath. You were given the skin on your, in your body. You were given the eyes in your head, the ears on your, in the sides of your head. If you have hair, you were given hair, right? He, he was given all things to enjoy the goodness of God who gives everything, right? The moment Paul talks about what does it mean to be in Jesus, he starts kind of doing this big swoop. Jesus has given us everything. He's given us everything that we could possibly want or need. He received, but the point is that we are to receive and then tell, right? What have you, what have you received that you, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast if, if you did not receive it? It's not that you don't talk about getting things from God. So you don't take credit for them. 
given, this is what given me by God. I don't know if anybody knows the name G.K. Chesterton. He was a guy, he was an English guy from 1900s. He was a bit of a maestro for joy. He's a weird guy. Like he was a journalist who also wrote like theology books. Then he wrote like some fantasy fiction. He was a, he was a very interesting guy. Very uh, a big, smoked a lot of cigars. He wrote this. When it comes to life, the critical thing is whether you take things for granted or take them with gratitude. The picture being getting your, your food on the table, right? And do you take it for granted or you sprinkle a little gratitude on it? I got this. It was given to me. I'm going to sprinkle a little gratitude. He, he, he goes on to say at another place, you say grace before meals, right? When you say grace before meals, you're saying, God, thank you for this food that I'm about to receive. I don't know if you say it kind of like out of rote habit or you actually say it because you mean it, right? But he says, you say grace before meals. All right. I say grace before the concert and the opera, right? Who's been to an opera recently? Grace before the play um, and, to pan- and the pantomime. Grace before I open a book. Grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing, and grace before I dip the... T- pen in the ink, right? The point that he's saying is, I thank God. I am grateful for everything I've received for anything in my life. I'm grateful for the clothes on my back. I'm grateful for the air I breathe. I'm grateful for this Hope Center where I can come in and meet with other people and care for my neighbors and support my friends in recovery or have help in recovery. I'm grateful for the good food (laughs) that either I made or I cooked, right? I'm grateful for a good parade that I get to enjoy and the colors in, this, in, the, in the world around me, right? All of this is, none of this is owed to us. And yet, what type of God is this who makes a world where he is constantly, constantly, constantly giving, 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 right? Every century experience you have today was given to you by a happy God who is eager to give it. And how many times do we often just take it for granted? I was owed to see those beautiful colors in the sky, no, it's not that you should feel bad about it. No, God, thank you. What a great gift that you've given me. This is the goodness of what it means to live in a world of a God who's just lavish. Have you thought about this, how lavish God is? I mean, if I designed a world, I do not think I would make it as ridiculously uh, sensory and explosive with color and then also mundane and filled with all these ridiculous smells Right, we have a lot of kids. I got a lot of smells in my house. Later in the book of Corinthians, Paul actually has this one little phrase he says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. That's chapter 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. There is a sense in which God has designed us to enjoy, to take in. He's a God who wants to be enjoyed. And a part of what it means to have a Jesus-centered identity is, first of all, not to get out there and do stuff, right? Not to get out and, but to enjoy, to receive, and say, God, thank you. You've been good to me. With every moment this week, rob the resume of your identity by giving gratitude to Jesus for everything that you've received. Something we've talked about in the past I confess I don't do this, and I would like to, so hold me accountable. Ask me if I've done this. It's a thankfulness jar. End of every day, just take a little scrap piece of paper. God, thank you for whatever it is, right? The way my friend 
texted me to encourage me, or thank you for the meeting that I was able to go to. Thank you for the food. God, thank you for ramen noodles. I really like cheap food, you know. Whatever it is, just throw it in there. And then Sunday afternoon when you're responding to Jesus, reminding yourself about his goodness, pull them out. God, thank you for this. Oh, I forgot about this. You got people in your family, have everybody do it and do it together. God, whoa, thank you. I forgot about this. How quick we forget about how God's been good to us. It's just a little practice as some people have mentioned they do. All right, we're going to move on. A Jesus-centered identity celebrates grace in all of life. So this is kind of all-encompassing, our hearts postured in a way to love Jesus. And then Paul picks up on a big of an issue here for them. Jesus-centered identity desires future-facing faithfulness. Future-facing faithfulness. I just want to read verse 8, and then we're going to kind of break this down a little bit. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. So what is Paul doing here? I'm not sure if any of you have the spiritual gift of sarcasm, but Paul does. Paul has a spiritual gift of sarcasm, and one of my favorite examples of this is, uh, anybody follow Wendy's Burger on, on Twitter? You know, you're know talking about Wendy's fast food on Twitter? Dude, they are savage. All right, so here's a couple examples of, uh, oh, you can't barely read them. All right. Somebody tweets at Wendy's, hey, can you find me the nearest McDonald's? And Wendy's, <laughs> trash can, right? The second one here, let's throw this other one up. Somebody said, or McDonald's, Black Friday, uh, whoops, somebody made a mistake here. <laughs> Wendy's, the tweets of McDonald's are broke, as broken as the ice cream machine, right? Just being like savage and just calling them out left and right. We could take that down because we're going to get distracted by that. They are just killing it at being sarcastic and making a point, right? Wendy's point being, right, uh, Wendy's burgers. Right? They had another tweet. Somebody was like, why are your burgers in the unnatural shape of a square? And their response was, because burgers come off the tree in a circle naturally, right? You know? <laughs> so, anyhow. This is the use of irony to mock and convey that there is a bit of some contempt. And Paul's point here is, right, the Corinthians, the Corinthians have taken the final ending of Jesus' story and put it in the middle of the story. They've, they've gotten things out of whack. The Corinthian church was saying, look, Paul had to work with his hands to provide for him as a pastor. Look, we're going to just give all of this money to our pastors, and they're not going to have to work a lick, and they're going to drive crazy cars, and they're going to wear expensive clothes, and they're going to be ridiculously blah, 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 impressive, extravagant, right? And Paul's point is to say, oh, oh, okay, okay. Well, well if you are already reigning with Jesus at the end where we get everything that God's promised to us, then I would love that because that means that I would be reigning with you right now. Right? That's what, so when you read that, right? Would that you have become kings and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. He's not saying that Christians don't reign with Jesus at the end. He's saying you just got the story flipped around. Then he picks up in verse 9. For I think that God has exhibited us as apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because you have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Again, here's a, this is something that when you read this passage, it's not overtly obvious because we don't live in the Roman province of Corinth in 60 AD. But back then, here's what would happen. When, Roman, when a Roman army would go through and take over a city or a nation state, 
They would destroy everything, and then they would take all the political leaders and, ca- and make them captives, and they would drag them at the end of the parade. So you think Super Bowl this last year, the Pats destroy the Rams. They come through Boston, leading the way through Boston to celebrate. And here's the Rams at the end of the parade, right? Could you imagine all of our spare, nasty, rotten fruit that we'd throw at them? Ah, those nasty Rams guys. But in the Roman times, not only would they do that, they'd throw them at the end of the parade. Then they would take those guys out into the middle of the city and they'd execute them all. (laughs) Bit of a different ending to the parade, right? So Paul is saying, look, he's using this image of a Roman victory and saying, you guys are trying to be at the beginning of the parade with all the world and the victory that the world thinks that it has. But God has put us at the end of the parade to be ashamed ashamed and and to show that God's ways are different than the world's ways, right? He is saying, you guys want to be at the front. That's not the place that God's blessing. The place that God's blessing, the place that God has called us to live is not that we should all uh, be like Paul, right? He goes on to talk about being, um, you know, wearing rags and being homeless and all that stuff. That's not the point. The point is to say, does your life reflect the faithfulness of Jesus that's distinct from the world's sense of wisdom and identity? Right? That's what he goes on to talk about here in verses 11 to 13, the marks of what it means to have a Jesus-shaped life. Right? Verses 11, to the present hour we hunger and thirst, we're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands, When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Right? His point is not that, okay, everybody here needs to give up everything that they own and become like Paul and fulfill these verses. He's actually making a bit of a reference to the Sermon on the Mount. If you know the book of Matthew, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the weak, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, when you are persecuted or slandered, bless. Um, when you're in need, trust your Father for your provision. That's what, Je- that's what Paul is referring to here. And he's saying, look, the, the life in Jesus, if we're in Jesus, the, um, we do not get the accolades of the world now. Right? Living in the way of Jesus is not the way to receive the accolades that our identity, that our insecurities often desire, right? We often are like, man, I just, I wish, I wish I was acknowledged. I wish I was seen. I wish I was approved of and known. We want all those things now. And Paul's saying, wanting those things is not necessarily bad. It's the timeline, right? Wanting to be rewarded for faithfulness is not bad. It's the timeline, right? Don't take the end of the story and put it in the middle. It doesn't make sense in the middle. Right? If anybody reads The Lord of the Rings, it doesn't make sense for Frodo and Sam to go off into their little, whatever, hobbit world in the middle of the story. They've got, a, they've got suffering and a job to do and things to get done. They will be rewarded, but their view needs to be towards the future. And Paul is just simply using this moment to say, if your identity is in Jesus, you are not looking to get rewarded now. Right? You will be snubbed. People will not see your faithfulness. You will not get the rewards you so eagerly crave because Jesus wants your identity rooted in him and not in the rewards. Because if you get heaven without Jesus, you might as well not get nothing at all because heaven's nothing without him. But if you get Jesus, okay, just throw heaven in. doesn't matter. Paul is pointing us, persist in your faithfulness, 
Continue to love Jesus, right? That's, he, that's why he's saying, live out the Sermon on the Mount. Love and care for and love your neighbor and support and entreat. But keep your eyes centered on the future where Jesus will reward us. So here's a test of whether we are being faithful for Jesus or religiously performing for our identity. Are you okay with obscurity? Are you okay with not being seen? Are you okay with not being rewarded? Are you okay with people not giving you accolades for what you've done? The most meaningful and faithful people in the, in the history of the world have never been known beyond their city or their neighborhoods. Right? How many of you know um, who Lionel Price is? No, nobody in this room knows who Lionel Price is. You know why? Because he's my, my wife's grandfather. Lionel Price worked in, uh, what was it, basically JCPenney in England for like 30, 40 years, was faithful to his wife, loved his family and kids, evangelized like crazy in his neighborhood. Um, he, I actually have his Bible, um, and he had stitched a sermon in the book of Galatians because he always wanted to have a sermon ready whenever he was that type of guy. Nobody knows his name, but he was faithful because he loved Jesus and he wanted to share who, grow in Jesus and share Jesus with his neighborhood. But nobody in the history of the world will know who Lionel Price was. That's, the reality is, most of us as well, beyond our city or our town. But that, that kind of seems like when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, that's kind of what Jesus has in mind. Yeah, we want to love America and we want to love New Hampshire, but really the best we can do is love Manchester or love Derry or love Goffstown or Bedford or where or wherever it is you're from. We really can just love those places and be faithful and be okay with obscurity. And Jesus loves to bless and reward faithfulness in the long haul because he, we will reign with him. That's not, it's not that you won't reign. And if you're from New Hampshire, maybe you'll get beachside property someday. That'd be great. But do you love, are you okay with your name? doesn't go down in history, but your neighborhood, your block, your town, They'll remember you because they tasted Jesus in your life. Don't go for the rewards. Go to be like Jesus and love the people in your neighborhood. So, G, so he's given us some, these should sound familiar because these are things we talk about a lot, but Jesus-centered identity, right, it celebrates and enjoys the grace of God in all of life. A Jesus-centered identity desires future-facing faithfulness. I want the future, and I'm faithful for that. It doesn't matter right now. Third thing we're going to pick up here, verses 14 to 17, a Jesus-centered identity recognizes our usefulness for Jesus' family. A Jesus-centered identity recognizes our usefulness for Jesus' family. All right, verse 14, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for I have become your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. You, you pick up all the ways in which Paul is using this family language, right? These are, you're my, not just my children. Hey, I've got kids that I've got to take care of in Jesus. No, you're my beloved children. You're my, my, my favorite kids, right? I love you, right? You don't have many fathers. I'm your father in Jesus, right? 
Then he talks about verse 16. Uh, I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Right? This is a fa- these are family, family words in Jesus. Right? We talk about King's Cross. If, if you've never been here before or you're just interested in, this is a family in Jesus, and we treat this like a family. We deal with things like a family. Right? And it, by the way, I don't know if you ever stumbled, like, worried about this, but he's like, I'm a, he says here, uh, I'm your father in the Lord. And then Jesus says, you're, you're not having any other fathers except father in heaven. It's just a metaphor that he's using, right? He's not saying, when Jesus says you don't have any other fathers, right, he's talking about identity language, right? He's like, your last name is to be God's child, like that's what, what Jesus is saying. And Paul here is saying, like, look, I was the one who helped you become a Christian. So there is, like, a relationship of, like, metaphor of birth, but I'm not ultimately your dad. So that's why we don't call me Father Jacob, because I'm just a pastor. I'm not, I might be, I, I got four kids, so I'm a dad to somebody, you know? But he sends and he sends family then. And then verses 16 to 17, right? This is a weird thing, right? If we're saying what Paul last week, gospel humility is not taking, thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself, but is thinking of myself less. Who reads this verse, verse 17, uh, verse 16, I urge you then, be imitators of me. How do you say, I don't think about myself very much, and then verse 16, uh, be imitators of me, right? That does not seem to go together, right? If you're like, okay, I don't think about myself much because my identity is rooted in Jesus. I'm free of having to manage myself, but hey, listen, follow me. Follow my example. It just doesn't seem to go together. I think there is a gospel-centered, upside-down world that Paul is talking about here. They're just off our maps, right? We just don't think about this, right? If I'm free from having to think about myself, I should then be able to recognize the grace of God in my life and then call people to follow the grace of God that he's using in my life to care for other people, right? You see the point here. I think this is where we get this. In Christ is used three times in this passage, right? For though you have countless guides in Christ, for I have become your father in Christ, that you may, to remind you of my ways in Christ. Right, if you are trying to use your gifts and skills for your own identity resume, you will not be building people into Christ. It will always be in me, right? Follow my leadership skills, follow my preaching style, follow my way of Christian life so that you might be found to be more like Jacob. <laughs> I, but if if my identity is rooted in Jesus, if your identity is rooted in Jesus, you want to direct people to live out who they are, the redeemed version of themselves in Christ, rooted in him. And it takes grace to recognize grace in our lives, right? We have to see, we have to, we have to be able to say, this is who I am in Jesus, and I'm grateful for who I am in Jesus, and I want to use this to serve you to be more like Jesus, Right? A friend of mine recently talked about um, recovery is often caught, not taught. It's the same thing for Christian growth, right? Our growth in Jesus is often caught and not taught, right? How many of us have been to infinite Bible studies and we can read a book about, you know, what does it mean to be a Christian and blah, blah, blah. And then like the next day, like we get up and we cuss at our kids or we yell at the person driving next to us or we get angry at our boss or, you know, all this stuff like we can teach all this stuff, and we need to because we need the categories. We need, to, like, the mental cups to be able to put things. But what does it mean to grow and become more like Jesus? It often just means living life next to each other to kind of rub off on each other, right? 
that's the, the family dynamic. And, and the, the way the grace of God works in our lives is that it's helpful to pick up, what are we good at? What are you gifted at? How has God gifted you? Because he's intended to use that to bless other people and to grow the church and to help us become more like Jesus together. Like, he's intended to use that. Right? I, I, I want to I use this. I'm going to get a little specific here and use an example in our church. Given given this guy a, head war, a heads up, I'm going to use Adam as an example of this in our church. Adam came to me a couple months ago, well, actually about five or six months ago, and he said, hey, I, I, I heard there's this need in the church, and I'd like to serve in this way. I said, hey, that's great, but I see God's gifted you to teach, and I would love for you to help us to grow as disciples. There's ways in which I can't get into teaching specific categories for the Christian life that I think that you can and I want you to do that to help us to be able to grow to be more like Jesus. So there was a, the grace of God in Adam's life to teach. And I wanted to right, get at it. That's why we got the Sunday school class at 9 o'clock, going through the New City Catechism, because Adam is gifted to teach. And I want people to know and to grow in those things. And Adam can do it. Right, so it's recognizing the grace of God in Adam's life. And it was funny because Adam's like, oh, that was like the, the thing I would love to do more than anything else. I'm like, well, that sounds like the Holy Spirit to me. Let's go, you know. It redirects, redirecting, getting grace in his life to then serve us. And then what happens is people sit in that class and think, I want to do this too. I want to help other people grow and be more like Jesus. So now the grace in Adam's life now not only helps other people to learn their Bibles and get to know who God is, but then it inspires grace in other people's lives to say, I want to do that too, right? The only reason I'm here is because I saw a pastor preaching and caring for other people and leading churches and getting in the mess of people's lives, and I said, I want to do that too, just like him. And I started thinking about it. I was like, okay, well, let's, let's follow the grace of God in this Grace stirs grace in other people's life. Do you, did you pick up on that? That Paul here says, look, I'm your father in the faith, but look, let me send you who, verse 17, that's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, right? The grace in Paul's life to be a faithful Christian, a faithful pastor, had birthed grace in Timothy's life to be a faithful Christian and a faithful pastor that now was doing the same thing as Paul and going and joining the mission of grace in other people's lives, right? That is when, when we recognize grace in our lives, how we're gifted, and we recognize that in other people's lives, how they're gifted, and we try to deploy each other as a family to serve and love Jesus, we stir up more grace. We become more, let's multiply this more and more. So I expect some of you sitting in, in, in Adam's class to come out of that thinking, I want to do that too. Well, great. Let's figure out a way for you to do that here. And then once God saves and builds more people as a part of this church, we'll kick you guys out and start another church someplace else. Like, let's get rid of you because we got too many gifted people here. We've got to send them out to go do something else. Just like Paul, Timothy, and the Corinthian church. Birthing grace by recognizing our usefulness for Jesus' family. So there, there's a strand in the Christian discussion sometimes where we, we don't want to draw attention to ourselves, or we don't want to say, here's what I'm good at or what I desire to be. Like, uh, don't do that. God, if you're, if you're Jesus-centered identity and you say, I'm gifted in this thing, you hold it open-handed, right? You can say, like with Paul, I'd like to come and do this thing, but we'll see what God does, right? I'd like to come and do this, but I'm trusting it to Jesus. So if you come to me with an idea like, I would love to do this, I'd serve in this way, it's like, okay, let's think about that. And if we get redirected, well, if your identity is centered in Jesus, 
You're not going to be too fluffed about that. But if your identity is like, I've got to be a Sunday school teacher, I've got to be a small group leader, I've got to be a pastor, and that doesn't happen, you're going to get all wigged out, get all twisted up. See, at Jesus Center, identity, recognize our usefulness for Jesus and for Jesus' family. So maybe this week, how has God gifted you? How has he given you grace in your life that you think could be used to set an example for other people? Right? Everybody in this room is not going to become a pastor. I mean, maybe, but not likely. Because there's a lot of different organs in the, in the body, right? How has he gifted you? How has he called you to serve his church? How can we work together to serve other people? And then ask this question, because we want to do this together. How do you see grace in somebody else's life and that maybe they don't even see? How can you encourage them? Hey, I see God using you in this way. I want to see you use more in this way. How can we see God's grace strengthened and multiplied in each other's lives? All right, and the last thing we're going to see here, so Jesus-centered identity it's this weird concoction of celebrates the grace of God in all of life. The Jesus-centered identity desires future-facing faithfulness. It recognizes usefulness for Jesus' family. And then we're going to pick up here at verses 18 to 21, deals with family, business, and love. And we're going to kind of touch on this and leave the rest of this for next week. For some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and the spirit of gentleness? See, Paul is now beginning to kind of transition in the letter to dealing with some hard realities in the church. That's what we're going to talk about next week. But a Jesus-centered identity is not stoic to the issues of the family of Jesus. It is not indifferent to them and is not overly fluffed about them. Sorry. <laughs> He's got a motorcycle, by the way. I don't know if you guys noticed that. <laughs> a Jesus-centered identity is not like overly dramatic about family issues, but it's also not stoic. It leans in, right? Paul's like, I'm going to lean in. I want to lean in on this issue to help, to bring correction, to bring grace. He takes the family issues head on, right? And don't you find it interesting, right? Just remember, this is the Apostle Paul, right? Probably one of the top ten smartest individuals to ever live on the face of the earth, right? That, uh, Christians, non-Christians look at his letters and they think, this is one of the smartest men ever wrote. Not only that, but he saw Jesus in his resurrected body, right? If there was ever somebody who could throw his weight around and be like, look, Jesus told me to be your pastor, right? <laughs> This is the Apostle Paul. He could have thrown around. He could have just been like, guys, I saw Jesus face to face. We've got a thing going here. Cut it out. <laughs> but he doesn't do that, does he? He sets us an example. He leans in. He talks about what does God say in his word? How does he live out the, the, the reality of Jesus' teaching? How does he lean in to entreat? It's almost as though he respects them for being people who can be reasoned with, but he appeals to them to trust in Jesus and to follow him. Right? There's a pattern there, right? He doesn't manipulate them. He doesn't strong-arm them. He doesn't use his leadership hat to be able to push them around. He comes alongside and redirects to Jesus because he takes the family's issues in love. He deals with family business in love. Right? A Jesus-centered identity is not dealing with family issues, hard things that happen in the church, to be selfish or to put, build up his own self-identity or to be defensive. 
or abrasive. But he comes alongside and says, here's what's going to happen here. And he deals with it in love. And you notice he keeps addressing them as a church. We're all committed to do this together in Jesus. It takes a whole church to be able to live out our identity in Jesus. It takes a whole community in Jesus to be able to live out. What does it mean to people who celebrate grace together? Right? Let's celebrate birthdays. Let's celebrate weddings. Let's celebrate all the, the things that are going on in our church. Let's celebrate just to celebrate, like two weeks after St. Patrick's Day, right? Let's just have a St. Patrick's Day parade because St. Patrick was awesome, right? What do you see in each other that we can draw out and celebrate together? How can you point at each other's lives and see the grace of God active in them? Do you see someone being quietly faithful who needs encouragement to keep their eyes on Jesus' return? How do you need to walk alongside each other to see, to be faithful with the return of Jesus? Maybe talk with others about how they see grace in your life to be useful to the church. Are there hard things that need to be leaned into and that Jesus gifted you and called you to? Not because you can feel like, I've got the perfect answer for this, because Jesus is the answer here. There are healthy ways, and I think what Paul's laid out for us is all these, these ways to celebrate, to desire, to recognize, to lean into and deal with family issues that live out our Jesus-centered identity. Because a Jesus-centered identity is rooted in a proactive pursuing God, and we have to do this together. So let's pray this week that we put our identity in Jesus into, an action, into action with each other. Let's pray. Father, as we've looked at your word, I pray you would help us. I pray that you would help us to be living out what does it mean to be a Christian, to be somebody who's not trying to prove ourselves to other people, but somebody who's happy in Jesus, and to live that out together. Would you help us to do that for the good of Jesus in our community and in our church and for our own souls? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.